0: Hi everyone, my name is Nick Harris and I am a fellow in the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. The Middle East Security Program is wrapping up a year-long project where we investigated different policy options for the U.S. as it charts out a new approach to the Syrian crisis. In particular, our study investigated how the U.S. could leverage Syria's fragmentation in a way that it could affect an outcome that benefits the United States and the broader international community. We are conducting a series of podcasts that look at some of the thornier issues that have impacted U.S. policy towards Syria since 2011. For today's episode, we will be investigating the Assad Dilemma. Since 2011, the United States has sought a post-conflict Syria where the Assad regime has been transitioned out of power. The Trump administration has recently modified that objective to simply changes in the Assad regime's behavior. Still, whether or not Bashar al-Assad remains in power in Syria is a thorny issue, and it significantly impacts how the U.S. will approach its policy towards the Syrian conflict moving forward. Joining me today for this episode are three distinguished guests. First we have Alexander Bick. Alexander is a research scholar at the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. From 2014 to 2016 he served as director for Syria at the National Security Council. Previously, Alexander served in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations and on the Secretary of State's Policy Plan and Staff. Before joining the U.S. government, Alexander worked in Libya as director of the Carter Center's International Observation Mission for the country's first post-conflict elections. In regard to Syria, Alexander played a lead role in developing and coordinating the Obama administration's strategy to defeat the Islamic State and supported negotiations with Russia to advance a peaceful settlement to Syria's civil war. We're also happy to have Faisal Itani join us today. Faisal is a resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Rafi Hariri Center for the Middle East. He focuses on the local dynamics and geopolitics of the Syrian conflict at the Atlantic Council. Faisal also teaches Middle East politics at George Washington University. In particular regarding the Syrian conflict, he has analyzed the Assad regime's strategy, U.S. policy towards the Syrian conflict, regional competition that has resulted from the Syrian conflict, and approaches to stabilize in Syria both during the conflict and in the aftermath of the conflict. And last but not least, my co-author on this report, Kaylee Thomas. Kaylee is a researcher in the Middle East security program here at CNAS. Previously she was program coordinator for both the Middle East security and energy economics and security programs here at CNAS. In addition to her work on the Middle East, Kaylee is currently conducting research on the State Sponsor of Terrorism Sanction Designation and she's an expert on how the U.S. approaches uh, economic strategies to impact international affairs. Thank you Alexander, Faisal, and Kaylee for joining us today. Since August 20, 2011, President Barack Obama has called for Bashar Assad's step aside. U.S. policy since that statement has been shaped by a goal to seek either a post-Assad future in Syria, or a future Syria where Assad's regime has changed its behavior significantly and can be welcomed into the family of nations. Alex, my
1: question is, why has it been so difficult for the U.S. to achieve these goals? Thanks, Nick, and obviously it's a pleasure to be here at CNS and and, um, uh, with Faisal and with Kaylee to to talk about um, this set of issues. It's a really, really difficult one. Uh, You've titled this uh, The Assad Dilemma, and I think, you know, I'll just start off by saying I think it is a genuine dilemma. This is a really, really tough problem. Uh, Within the administration, the Obama administration, we came back to this issue time and time again. President Obama personally, uh, his cabinet, uh, an enormous amount of intellectual energy was uh, spent trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And I think it, it really is a good illustration of where uh, America's values and America's interests have been at odds with one another in different ways as the uh, conflict has evolved. Maybe a good way to start out in, in answering this question is to uh, really kind of demythologize a little bit what the U.S. position was. Assad must go is the mantra that everybody returns to, but if you look at that August 18, uh, 2011 statement. what uh, the, uh, President Obama said was, the time has come for President Assad to step aside. And this was in the context of really uh, escalating violence against the Syrian people by the Syrian government, uh, particularly the statement cited uh, violence in Deir ez-Zor and, and in Hama. But the very next sentence, which gets almost no attention now, said, uh, it's up to, uh, excuse me, the United States cannot and will not impose this transition upon Syria it is up to the Syrian people to choose their leaders. We have heard their strong desire that there not be a foreign intervention in their movement. What the United States will support is an effort to bring about a Syria that's democratic, just, and inclusive for all Syrians. We will support this outcome by pressuring President Assad to get out of the way uh, of a transition uh, and by standing up for the universal rights of the Syrian people along with others in the international community." And I think, clearly, that statement was intended to not paint the Syrian opposition as stooges of the United States. That was its immediate intent. But within it, I think, is a very clear demonstration of how the president viewed this issue, which was this would not be a military project with the shadow of Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and, and shortly uh, thereafter, uh, I think Libya would fit into this same pattern. Uh, The president was very hesitant to use military force to bring this about. And I think that that, uh, element of the statement has been lost and uh, I think intentionally misinterpreted by many actors over time. Um, So, you know, I think uh, if the question is, you know, why was that objective not achieved, there are a whole host of different things that that we can point to. Um, Clearly, sanctions didn't work, a mass insurgency didn't work, uh, and negotiations essentially have had almost no effect on Assad's determination to stay in power. And I can lay out just a few reasons for that. Um, I think the first one is, uh, although there were some really important defections early on within the Syrian military, the regime and and the military overwhelmingly remained loyal to the president. I mean, that's a very different picture than you had uh, particularly in in Egypt, but uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, Secondly, uh, many Syrians, even those who uh, find the regime odious and oppose it ideologically uh, were even more frightened by Islamic extremism than they have been by Assad himself. And I think that's particularly true for religious, uh, religious minority groups, including the Alawites, um, who have viewed this conflict as an existential one from the very beginning. So you had a core around uh, Assad that he could count on throughout the war. I think those, those two factors are, are really uh, very, very important ones. Uh, let me add three more. Uh, I think the Syrian opposition, uh, in some ways, f- It's understandable why this was the case. The opposition was divided intentionally by the Assad government uh, over many, many years, but it also failed to cohere effectively, and it failed to overcome the divisions among its external sponsors, and it failed to put forward, uh, I think, a unified front, which was effective. I worked, uh, as I think you heard in in the introduction that I gave, I worked on Libya before working on Syria, and there, the opposition cohered much more effectively. Even with that coherence, we ended up with three governments in Libya. I think the contrast was one that, that people were paying attention to. Uh, two more. I think the support, obviously, of Russia, Iran, and China uh, has been decisive in encouraging Assad to remain firm in his positions. I don't think it's just the military support. I think it's also for China and Russia in particular, the ability to, to keep there from being a consensus within the UN Security Council that would have made a big difference in the way the United States uh, might have responded, or at least created opportunities the United States didn't seize. Um, and then lastly, Obviously, the United States decided not to intervene militarily, with the exception of uh, the two strikes related to chemical weapons in 2017 and 2018, but those uh, were limited. So my own personal view is that it was unlikely from the beginning that Assad would leave voluntarily. But when you put all of these pieces together, um, I think it it gave Assad uh, the view that he could persevere and didn't really need to to make the compromises that, that were being asked of him. Alex, that's an
0: excellent rundown, and it really does help us sort of get a sense of just sort of the Assad dilemma from the U.S. perspective, especially in that early part of the uprising that then became sort of an armed revolution and a civil war, where it was kind of difficult to sort of get who was who in the ecosystem of the Syrian opposition and the impact of various foreign actors that were in some ways approaching their own agendas in Syria. And I think the point that you raise about Assad was stronger than the perception of him was is a very important one for us to understand as we look at the Assad dilemma moving forward. And Faisal, you have had significant experience um, trying to get into the mind of the regime. So I have just sort of a 2 for you on this point. How true is it, like some analysts say, that the Assad family is the regime and the regime is the state in Syria? And how has the Assad family and the regime that it has built around it changed since the Syrian civil war began? And how has it survived?
2: Thanks, thanks, Nick, a pleasure to be here. I think actually the question you asked Alex and the questions you raised now are pretty intimately intimately linked. Is uh, my, my, my sense of whether the Assad regime is the same thing as Assad, I'd have to say no. Uh, remember that it took several years since the year 2000, essentially for Assad to consolidate his position inside the regime, eliminate some rivals, win over older ones and build new constituencies. I think the best analogy that I use, and I I don't mean this in a glib manner at all, I think it's a good one, even if if you dig down deep into it, is a kind of an organized criminal enterprise where you have somebody obviously who is the nexus of trust and fear that everybody else has to kind of either dance around, please plot around, uh, and they understand that in his absence, all sorts of uncertainties would be created that would make life difficult for them, risky, and make a lot of comfortable people uncomfortable. Uh, so, in general, he's uh, he's the kind of center of center of an enterprise. I don't know that that means he's irreplaceable. But I do think that in the context of a kind of existential civil war that they were facing was probably not the best time for them to, to test that out. And so they decided that they are going to act as if they are one and the same insofar as it relates to the insurgency and the foreign threat.
1: Yeah, I, I think I agree with, with most of what you've just said. I, I would just add a couple kind of details to it. Um, one is that if you think about the period before Hafez al-Assad took power, Uh, the period, in other words, between independence from France in 1946 and 1970, when when Hafez took power, there were seven coups. Uh, There was a country which essentially was created uh, with artificial borders, with uh, a real concentration, much more than in many other places, of religious and and ethnic minorities, uh, with a a fairly well-developed ideological spectrum of political positions. It was highly unstable, and I think about uh, Nasser's comment in the 1970s as Syria and uh, Egypt were considering and experimenting with unity uh, Nasser is, is reputed to have said Syria is ungovernable and what uh, th- that these factions in other words were more than than he was able to, to deal with and you know, The fact that Hafez came in and was able to create a system Which has endured as long as it has is a testament to having figured out something about how to control Syria as, a, as an entity I'm not saying that it's a positive thing or a negative thing and part of that is a real cult of personality uh, there were, uh, by the time of Hafez's death, according to Fuad Jami, there were 3,000 statues um, of the president dotted around the country. That's a lot of statues, and it's a, it's a cult of personality which um, was one of the ways of legitimating the state. And I think the real question, and it gets to the heart of the, the dilemma, the policy dilemma for the United States at least, and I think for others, but certainly for the United States, is if you pull out, can you pull out the top and the deck of, or the the house of cards remains intact, Or if you pull out the top, does the house of cards collapse? And I think some analysts have confused the question of the relative density and experience and and coherence of the administrative system of the Syrian state, which I think is pretty strong, with the the elite, that top group of people who have been dependent on Assad. And I think the judgment within the United States government was that it was a real risk that if you took that top card out, the whole thing would, would collapse.
0: Kaylee, I want to ask you, we've seen this before time and time again, the U.S. and other international actors have recognized these dynamics that Faisal and Alex have laid out with other regimes in Sudan and Iraq. North Koreans and now also with the Venezuela crisis we see that there is this sort of tendency to turn to sanctions and the tools of economic statecraft to either force changes in the behavior of regimes or to put the pain on certain key sectors within regimes to try to get them to come to an agreement that the sanctioned countries want. From your perspective, how would you characterize the U.S. approach to the Assad regime? from the perspective of sanctions and the tools of economic statecraft.
3: Yeah, thanks, Nick. I I think there has been definitely a reliance uh, from the United States on economic and financial pressure uh, in incentivizing Assad or members of his regime to change their behavior um, in, in a way that is amenable to the United States. But some of the points that Faisal and Alex laid out earlier, uh, such as kind of the criminal uh, enterprise nature of the regime and its elites, as well as uh, its increasing reliance on Moscow and Beijing, definitely interrupted and inhibited uh, the ability for the United States to use economic warfare to affect the changes that it wanted to see. I think it is important to note that sanctions alone generally have not changed regime behavior in the past, um, and I don't think there's a sanctioned expert who would say that that is achievable. But usually if you use sanctions in accordance uh, and accompaniment with other tools such as military force or public diplomacy, uh, that they can play an important part. However, in Syria, we saw uh, both Russia and China step up militarily, uh, diplomatically, and then also financially to kind of cushion the impact that US and European measures Uh, while intense, had on the regime and specifically the elites within Syria. So what we saw is that the economic impact that these measures had as they did impact the Syrian economy in the immediate uh, aftermath of those measures that went into effect in 2011, um, that even in that aftermath, that the regime elites were willing to see the Syrian people suffer as long as they could maintain their own financial gains. So that has really inhibited the US's ability to affect change.
2: I, I do wanna, <clears throat> I agree, absolutely. And I wanna add one more point that links back to your original question, which is why is it that we have not been able to affect change in behavior? I think from the very beginning, the, the kind of macro problem was uh, and I'm not saying each president believed this but I'm saying the people who were thinking a lot about Syria uh, misunderstood the, uh, the, the the zero-sum nature of the way the regime saw their situation uh, and which is what which is what caused them to go and shoot protesters. And Dara and in Homs, etc. Because they viewed that if they make any any concessions at all, what they're actually admitting is we don't we can't do whatever we want. We have to make concessions, and therefore this whole thing is going to unravel. And that circle of fear and trust unravels too. The criminal enterprise doesn't work. So when we come up to them and we tell them, we design a policy like we have now, for example, around maximum economic pressure because we want to instill regime change, change of behavior whatever uh what we're asking them to do is essentially dismantle themselves whereas if you go up to i'm not a sanctions expert but if you go up to North Koreans and you tell them well here's what we want you to do with your ballistic missile program or you tell the iranians here's what we want to do about your enrichment i mean they might tell you no but at least it's conceivable that they might say if you give us this thing we'll give you that thing what are we gonna give the Syrian regime that would make that would make it worthwhile for them to essentially dismantle their regime by changing the kind of dynamics we've identified as unacceptable? The role of the security forces, the corruption, the cooperation with Hezbollah, etc., the repression of people, the political prisoners. The regime cannot survive without doing these things. Certainly not after six years of war or eight years of war. So I think that kind of goes back to the fact that I think we misunderstood their calculation to begin with. And I'm not saying I was immune to that mistake, but uh, I think it became clear early on what the asking price was, and it's unacceptable. So I don't see how we can make a strategic and moral case out of sanctions, other than just saying, look, we don't want to have nothing to do with this regime. That's it.
1: I would take issue just with that very last point, because I think the sanctions were partially meant to be punitive against individuals within the regime. But fundamentally, strategically, the goal of the sanctions is to increase the cost for Iran and Russia of maintaining the government. And so I come back to the the House of uh, Cards metaphor because it's not that we thought, uh, we in the Obama administration thought that uh, it wasn't preferable for Assad to leave. It's that we wanted the other cards to stay in place. And the only way for that really to happen, uh, in our estimation, was for uh, Russia to play the role of helping to bring about a political transition where most of the state would remain intact and and go through a reform process subsequently. And that does put, obviously, a lot of the the onus on Russia, and it's an onus that the Russians have not been eager uh, to to take up. But the assumption of the sanctions, and a really critical assumption of the sanctions, is that if it became expensive enough for Russia, and and, uh, now also for Iran, uh, to maintain Assad in power, As opposed to supporting some kind of a political transition then that could play a a potentially constructive role in in, uh, changing what was taking place in Syria.
3: I would also add that when the sanctions were initially uh, or at least the sanctions um, the sanctions measures from 2011 were initially imposed that there was an effort there to have these sanctions be a focus around which the international community um, could build a coalition and a consensus to put diplomatic pressure on Assad as well Obviously, that worked in the case of Europe and the European Union, as well as Turkey and some members of the Arab League. Um, but that did not obviously convince Russia and Iran to turn their backs on on Assad. So, I mean, that takes us back to Alex's point of how do you change Russia and Iran's calculus today? Uh, and then hopefully change their behavior in the way that they deal with the Assad regime.
0: So I want to pick up on this thread because the three of you have really given us this really excellent way of looking at how different levers of American power that have been attempted to try to change the Assad regime's behavior or, as some would say, fundamentally lead to changes in the regime or an exit of the regime from Syria have sort of run up against the wall. And so my question is... Is it useful this late in the Syrian crisis for the U.S. to continue to try to keep insisting on changes in the Assad regime's behavior, and can we say that there are fundamental differences between how the Obama administration approached it and how Mr.
1: Trump's administration approaches achieving this goal? I'm happy to take a first a first stab at that. I mean, I think those are those are two two separate questions a little bit. Um, you know, the first question, is it worth continuing to press the regime to change its behavior? I think the answer to that question is undeniably, yes. Uh, I think it's a, a, a strategic moral responsibility for the United States to try to get the Assad government to behave uh, in ways different than it is, and I could enumerate uh, a number of areas where I think, uh, even uh, absent a political transition, that uh, you know major improvement could be made, the treatment of detainees, the uh, allowance of humanitarian assistance to come into the country. Um, And a a number of those uh, steps that the United States has called for for many years. Uh, More ambitiously, I think some kind of an agreement which uh, would uh, limit a re-escalation of violence, particularly right now thinking about Idlib, uh, is a place where changing the Assad uh, regime's behavior, uh, they're gunning for that that operation, I think uh, restraining them is something that's very, very important. And then, you know, more ambitious than that even would be some kind of an agreement where Syria's uh, unity would be maintained and foreign forces would leave. I think that's in the interest of uh, most Syrians. I think it's in the interest of the United States. Um, So are there things that we would like the Syrian government to do even if it doesn't, uh, even if it remains in power? Uh, Yes, I think we should have extremely modest expectations about their interest in doing any of those things and in the interest of of, uh, Russia and Iran in in pushing them to do those things. Um, The question that you asked about Trump and Obama uh, is a little bit more complicated. To me, the fundamental transition or uh, shift in Syria policy from the United States took place not in 2017 when President Trump took office, uh, but in late 2014 in response to uh, ISIS uh, spreading across Western Iraq and uh, Eastern Syria. And at that point, I think the United States confronted a, a very basic uh, and fundamental dilemma, which was slightly different from the uh, Assad dilemma, but informed it in very important ways, which was, can you organize a counterinsurgency and support an insurgency in the same country at the same time? To which uh, the rational answer is no. And a prioritization had to be drawn between defeating ISIS on the one hand uh, and dealing with the political situation in Damascus on the other. Uh, There there were versions of uh, arguments that were presented at that time, which was that that does not have to be a contradiction, you should overthrow the Assad regime and then work with the new transitional government to fight ISIS. Um, I personally didn't view that uh, as, a, as a credible approach given the capacities of transitional governments elsewhere in the world. Uh, and I don't think the president saw that as realistic either. But in any case, that was an option, or we could have partnered with Assad to fight ISIS, but we saw that as, as uh, morally indefensible and strategic, strategically probably unwise. Um, So we were left with a situation where we had to choose between those two and we chose ultimately to focus on the threat from ISIS. What I think Trump did was say out loud and make explicit and bald and uh, rough around the edges uh, essentially what the United States had already been doing for at least two years, which was to prioritize ISIS, uh, to uh, uh, work with the Russians to improve the situation in Syria but not have high expectations that that would succeed. Uh, and I think, you know, that that is the approach that, in macro terms, that the Trump administration has taken. Of course, they've veered wildly back and forth from uh, Nikki Haley saying early on that uh, removing Assad was not a priority, and the president tweeting that uh, a covert program had been ended, uh, which appeared to fulfill Trump's campaign promises. To subsequent statements from uh, pretty much every senior uh, administration official that the United States remained committed to. Uh, Uh, removing President Assad from power and the U.S. US military presence in the country would be contingent on that. So I think, you know, the public statements from the Trump administration have have veered back and forth, but the the direction of U.S. policy since late 2014, early 2015, uh, has been one way. I
2: have obviously not much to add to the Obama worldview, uh, to what Alex already said. Uh, I guess I agree, I think there's more strategic similarities than, than differences. Obviously, it was a much more complicated problem at the beginning than it was by the time Donald Trump became president. Uh, um, for, from the outside, what's one cosmetic difference at least seems to be that there's so much more contradiction and flipping around and change from within this administration on this topic than there was in the Obama administration. Obviously, I, my assumption is that not everybody agreed in the Obama administration about everything, but in this case, we have such widely different points of views asserting that the thing X or thing Y is US policy. So there's a degree of confusion to someone who's not sitting on the inside that I think wasn't really there uh, during the early years of the war. But I, I do want to circle back to your original question, which is I guess the question we're all wrestling with is, is it worth staying on this tack that we have on on Syria now that what's happened has happened and we know a little bit more about the regime. Well, first of all, I guess that depends on whether we think it will work. Uh, I think there are some things of use that could be accomplished. Alex mentioned the release of prisoners uh, and uh, the resettlement of refugees. So I'm adding that, etc. In return for some quid pro quo on sanctions and it can, uh, fine. I mean, I think that's. I think that's a good thing to do. I think it's realistic that it might work, uh, may not, but it's worth a try. Uh, and it's noble, it's a noble cause. And if it doesn't work, we are where we are. Uh, the The more different question is the kind of more ambitious goal of political change in, in uh, Damascus, whether that's because we managed to compel the regime to change something, or we managed to make the price so high for the Iranians and Russians, that they will basically do the regime change work for us, but in a different way. Uh, for a number of reasons, that, I mean, I'm happy to speak about them, but it's really long and complicated. Uh, I don't believe either of those things will happen, uh, and therefore my assumption is that that particular track won't work, the ambitious uh, economic sanctions track. So that leaves us with two options. Do we stick to sort of goals that are, on theory, good goals? I mean, we all want to see that happen in Damascus. I certainly do even though there is no reasonable expectation that it will happen anytime soon at an acceptable cost unless we go to war in Syria, which we won't, Uh, or do we say, actually, we should not be in the business of asking for things from much weaker parties that they won't deliver only because we don't want to take on that same risk? I have to say, I lean towards not asking for something you're not going to get as a world superpower from from a much weaker party and just kind of defining down your aims and your goals to sort out what your appetite for risk is and what
0: you think the realistic policies are. That's my own point of view. Kaylee, I want to jump in and ask you a question regarding this. Um, You get the sense when you talk to Trump administration officials and you see some of the statements that have come from senior Trump officials particularly regarding Iran, uh, that there's the sense that by having a maximum pressure campaign on Iran through sanctions, you can stir up the hornet's nest within Iran that therefore forces the Iranians to sort of diminish their presence in Syria. Syria. To my mind, that policy seems to pair with this other sort of idea that you can sort of sanction Assad to his knees and make it difficult for Russia to carry him. What is your perspective on the use of sort of economic statecraft to achieve those types of goals?
3: I think there has been a tendency in the Trump administration to both be attracted to these maximum economic pressure campaigns. They've been talked about in the context of North Korea, Iran, even Venezuela now, as well as Syria. Um, And there's also this obsession with a kind of Trumpian big for big deal um, which is what is imagined in the case of North Korea and Iran and potentially Syria Um, and so there's definitely a lot to unpack when you look at how maximum pressure can play a role in achieving some sort of big for big deal I think overall the idea of kind of at the base saying we have this long laundry list of things that we're asking for um, you know very meaningful reforms from the Assad government in exchange for a single kind of large lifting of US sanctions and restrictions. Something like that, as for a number of the reasons that Faisal pointed out, is probably not achievable. So when you look at using economic pressure to seek and effect change within the Assad regime, you do need to be very specific about what changes you're looking for. I think it's important to note that when uh, President Trump renewed the national emergency in the context of Syria in May of 2018, that he did uh, say that he intended to renew that national emergency the next year unless there were changes in the policies, composition, or behavior of the regime. And that's kind of been the top line target, I think, of the United States. And then, alternatively, you've seen the U.S. Congress try to parse that out a bit more in pieces of poten- of legislation, potential laws like the Caesar uh, Civilian Protection Act, where they've enumerated a very long list of changes, including, you know, adherence and fulfillment of the requirements of the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, release of prisoners, uh, irreversible progress in the G- uh, uh, progress in the Geneva process. Um, and a number of other things, actions to be taken by Syria, Russia, and and Iran, which is asking for a lot of things all at the same time. Um, it's not a kind of staged-out progression of changes. And I think that usually when you think about using economic pressure, you do want to envision a bit of a ladder. So if we're going to ratchet economic pressure up, which there is potential to do in the case of Syria, uh, as is outlined in the Caesar Civilian Protection Act, you want to be clear about what will lead to the rationing of pressure down. And I think it is a disservice to United States and to US policymakers to make that a one for one. We're asking for all of this lump sum and change for a significant um, lifting of US sanctions and to, and to identify and to delineate that ladder a little bit more specifically.
1: Yeah, just to come in briefly on that, I think that's exactly right, uh, and it, it gets a bit to something that Faisal said a, a moment ago, which is you know a superpower shouldn't be out publicly asking for things that it's going to be embarrassed on. I don't I don't disagree with that, but I think now about the op-ed that that Bill Burns had in the New York Times yesterday about the practice of diplomacy. Diplomacy is routine and systematic. continuous activity between states what you want to see is a clear set of expectations from the United States which represent what the United States wants to see from other states in the world that should be clearly communicated and consistently communicated and it may be that the answer is no over and over again and it may be that circumstances change and the answer suddenly becomes yes the problem with uh, Syria diplomacy right now, and, and obviously I'm not privy to everything that Jim Jeffries and, uh, and Jim Jeffries and his team is uh, are doing, but the problem is that the demands are public and inconsistent. Mm. And if I was sitting in Damascus, I wouldn't know what I had to give or what I might get. Or that if I gave what I had been... I might have to give that I would actually get what I had been offered by one official but contradicted by another official. And I think that creates a real problem for the exercise of, uh, of U.S. diplomacy. You know, Assad has time on his side, not in every respect, but in multiple respects. And you know, people talk about normalization with the regime or uh, you know, rehabilitating the regime in the international community, the reopening of embassies, the lifting of sanctions etc. I am not of the view that we're going to get a lot out of the Assad regime right now on any of the fundamental things that we would like to see. However, I think we have to factor in the possibility that uh, absent any effort to present a clear ladder, as you just said, uh, eventually we will normalize anyway and we will get nothing in return. I absolutely agree (laughs) with that. I
2: think uh, the normalization thing is waiting on a, a current president to leave and attention to shift elsewhere, but uh, it's eventually. This is the natural momentum of the region, is that either someone is an enemy and they work on subverting them forever, or they come back to the club, and now with this kind of anti-Islamist sentiment floating around, a lot of regimes in the Middle East, there is a tendency to see Assad as, at least not on the Islamist side. And there's the old trope about maybe we can drive a wedge between him and Iran and so on and so forth. So,
0: I think that's the natural tide of things, yeah. So, you know, there's, there is a sort of devil's dilemma to the Assad dilemma that I want to put on the table. And it's something that has, that has sort of come into public focus over the last year. You know, Bob Woodward, the intrepid, um, you know, generational White House reporter, in his 2018 book, Fear, Trump in the White House, states that in April, 2018, President Trump ordered then Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, to kill Bashar al-Assad, and I'm quoting, the whole lot of them, meaning senior members of Assad's regime. The Assad regime can be credibly linked to crimes against humanity, the widespread use of weapons of mass destruction over the course of one of the worst crises in modern human history. And it is a crisis that the Assad regime has done the lion's share of the work precipitating. So my question to you is this, why doesn't the US simply remove Bashar al-Assad and his regime from power once and for
1: all by force? As I said, I mean, you know, this this is the dilemma and, and I'm not sure I, I answered your, your first question fully, but the dilemma is Do you take the enormous risk of overthrowing a government uh, in order to try to create one uh, that is more amenable both uh, to your own interests and to uh, the livelihoods of of Syrians? Uh, Or do you accept that the cost of that is too high and then figure out how to deal with all of the problems that that uh, regime has uh, imposed on its citizens and and in the region? That is a a fundamental dilemma. And I I, I don't believe that that dilemma is very that the, the core element of that dilemma is unchanged today as it was before. I do think though that some things have changed. There is not a, uh, an active uh, opposition of the sort that the United States could conceive of working with at this point. It doesn't exist if it ever did. Um, the fact that Russia is now militarily involved and invested to the extent it is, is not simply a question of with the United States uh, through this kind of a strike or, or set of strikes Um, It's not just a question of whether there would be a confrontation between the United States and Russia. That alone, I think, is, is potentially a prohibitive issue. But it's also that Russia has deeply invested now its international reputation in its ability to stabilize the Assad government. We would be doing something that would fundamentally damage Russia's international reputation in a way that's actually more problematic now than it would have been in 2012 or 2013. And so you know, I think that has to be taken into account. So you have the how questions, you know, strikes or an opposition or some other uh, mechanism by which you think you're going to affect this change. Uh, and then there's the implications question, one of which I've just said, which is about Russia's response. But the other is, I think there's a sense among some analysts of Syria that it just can't get any worse. And I'm, I, I'm not at all of the view that the situation in Syria is in a good place or, or has been in a good place at any point during the war. But there are more than 10 million people who live in Assad-controlled territory or who live in Turkish or American-backed territory where the fighting has decreased substantially. And many of those people, although not all, have chosen stability over revolution uh, for their own reasons. And uh, to risk the collapse of the regime at this point uh, and the millions of additional refugees would almost certainly flow into Lebanon, potentially try to flow into Israel, uh, Turkey, Jordan, etc. In other words, to, to take that enormous risk, uh, to me, is is inconsonant with uh, the uh, living conditions and situation for many, many Syrian people. And it's also totally out of step with the United States' strategic priorities around the world. We have uh, uh, the real uh, potential, uh, we have a real existing challenge in, in managing North Korea's nuclear program. Uh, we have an enormous uh, challenge with the rise of China as a geopolitical force around the world. We have a resurgent Russia in Europe and affecting democracies uh, around the world. Uh, we have a, a crisis in Venezuela that's brewing. Uh, to me, to add another large-scale crisis to that list would be uh, strategically unwise.
2: I, uh, Whenever I think about this question, I think I feel slightly differently today than I would have felt a few years ago about it, Uh, partly because I don't think that a revolution that breaks out in a country and the decision of what to do about it is the same thing as let's go overthrow that regime. I don't think it's the same thing. And I think now would be a little more akin to the latter situation and what we did in Iraq in 2003, not exactly the same, obviously, than it would be to a situation of total flux where we have you know 100 actors some of which kind of like us a lot of which don't etc um, and then when you kind of try to move that in a direction you know it's less involved the responsibility is a bit more spread and morally i think it's also more justifiable uh, but you know we are we are where we are now uh, the question of yes you're right things could always get worse uh, the, the thing about all these changes is either they get worse and then somewhere Goes somewhere better, or they get worse and it goes somewhere worse and stays there. And we don't know what the answer to that question is. And if we did, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, but it still wouldn't answer the question of how. You raised some excellent points, and you anticipated something I was going to say, which is first of all, there's no more opposition in Syria. And you know, not that the opposition was ever great, but you know, it was a grassroots armed opposition to a regime uh, that at least in theory could work with us. There that isn't there anymore, and whatever's left of the opposition has become something a bit different, uh, kind of proxies in the classical, uh, in the classical sense. Uh, so it's harder now. Where the other problem is the set of circumstances and assets. So in addition to the China problem, that's a bigger problem than just oh it's one of the things we're worried about. It's a huge problem, uh, and the fact that we have a general dissonance within Western alliances about how to approach the world. Uh, We also have problems here, and I don't mean that as a kind of throwaway. First of all, I don't think that, uh, and I can say this, I'm not a government, I don't think this president is someone I want taking me into that adventure. Uh, And second of all, I don't think there, there seems to be almost no consensus within the American public about anything that America should be doing abroad. And something like this tricky and this ugly, would be something you at least want a bit of critical mass. You want no one to care, or you want people to broadly agree that it's a good idea and we'll see it through. Uh, and that's not there either. So I'm very uncomfortable doing anything kind of adventurous with American foreign policy at a time at a time like that.
3: I think I would also just add that this would put extreme pressure on uh, the United States relations that are already tenuous with its European partners. Um, who I don't believe uh, would be in favor of of such an action and who I think are already uh, frustrated at the fact that they are kind of bearing the burden of keeping Iran uh, to adhere to the principles of the JCPOA um, and that this kind of chaos potentially in the region would make that more difficult as well as potentially exacerbate the, the refugee issue that at least the European public uh, cares about and is putting domestic political pressure on a lot of European leaders um, to think about that and to think about what steps need to be taken for refugees to be repatriated in large numbers and significant numbers to Syria. So I think that that's just another fa- vector uh, of risk and and of Serious negative consequence that the u.s. Would be managing and that's not worth taking on
0: well. Thank you very much uh, Alex Faisal and Kayla. This has been a very robust discussion So I'd like to end on this note Let's say President Trump is about to get on his golf cart in Mar-a-Lago. He's got about a minute For each of you to sort of give him one last thing that he should think about as he approaches the Assad dilemma What is something that we haven't touched on
1: that you think should be put into that briefing? I'll repeat a bit some of the things I said before, but I I think what Syria policy has suffered from for a very long time uh, is a schizophrenia on this question and uh, a swinging uh, from one side to another uh, about our expectations of what might take place in Syria. And I think uh, at this point, we need to have sober expectations about what we can achieve. I think we should be very, very clear in communicating those. Uh, I think preventing uh, a bloodbath in Idlib is a central one right now. I think uh, sending a clear message to the Assad government uh, of what they would need to do for us to begin to engage with them in a more meaningful way uh, and holding to those positions consistently is the most likely to to get us uh, somewhere. It's not where we would like to be, it's not what we would like to get, it's not the Syria we would like to see, uh, but we will get uh, very little, if anything, if we're not uh, consistent and clear on those things that we think we can achieve.
3: On the note of potentially ratcheting up the, the economic pressure, uh, and um, and in the context of the White House's uh, vocal support of the, C- of the Caesar Civilian Protection Act, I just want to ask that President Trump and U.S. policymakers consider the lives of those who are still living and residing within Syria and uh, regime controlled or allied controlled areas. Because a ratcheting up of pressure is likely, despite the grave human rights situation, to also have a humanitarian impact on the country and U.S. sanctions have already had a humanitarian impact on the country. And That's something to consider, especially if you are unsure that rationing up the pressure will actually get you a change in anyone's calculus within Syria.
2: You both said more profound things than, than I would say. Uh, I would say that uh, this tendency or temptation to think that your regional allies are going to take care of some of these problems for you is probably dangerous. Uh, partly because I think that he or his administration seems to be overestimating the capacity of uh, the military and economic capacity of, uh, of some of our regional allies. And also I think misreading their commitment or the nature of their commitment to the Iran problem, um, such that they see most of their problems through the prisms of regime security, including their international relations problems. Uh, and that's why, you know, the Saudis go into Yemen, but don't want anything to do with Syria. That's why the Emiratis complain about Iran. But actually, you know, uh, what they really hate are the Islamists. And, you know, they go and intervene in Libya and stuff like that. So I don't know where this idea came from, because it's, I haven't seen it in my policy-interested lifetime, that this, that this burden would be shifted onto these states. But I think if he, believe, if he actually believes that, I think it's dangerous and needs to be uh, reconsidered when he decides what he wants to do in the north of Syria. That should be taken with the with the assumption that if America is not physically present in Syria, everybody's recalculation is going to be reset. And we're going to go more towards normalization,
0: finding some sort of coexistence with Russia and the Turks, etc. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This has been an excellent discussion. And... Look forward to the next discussion in the series. Thank you. Thank you.